Hello, everyone. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Tor Books, who have a brand new novel they want us to tell you about. It's called The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona Ward. Uh, our show's namesake, which uh, I shouldn't have to tell you is Stephen King, says, The buzz is real. I haven't read anything this exciting since Gone Girl. Uh, this shocking and immersive read is perfect for fans of Shirley Jackson and Joe Hill, says the press release that I am required to read. Here's the pitch. In a boarded-up house on a dead-end street at the edge of the wild Washington woods lives a family of three, a teenage girl who isn't allowed outside, not after last time, a man who drinks alone in front of his TV, trying to ignore the gaps in his memory, and a house cat who lives napping and reading the Bible. I don't know how a cat reads the Bible. An unspeakable secret binds them together, but when a new neighbor moves in next door, what is buried out among the birch trees may come back to haunt them all. Catrion Awards, The Last House on Needless Street, is on sale now. Everywhere books are sold. Sign up for Nightfire's monthly newsletter and follow them on social media at Tor Nightfire on socials and at TorNightfire.com. And it wouldn't be an episode of the KingCast without us highlighting our dear corporate overlords over at Fangoria, especially their kick-ass magazine, which always explores every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future, with all of the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including uh, your intrepid hosts here who have been in that magazine's hallowed halls as of late. I don't know. Do magazines have halls? I'm going to say they have halls. Uh, they have back <laughs> the walls. They do. They have back walls. They have ceilings. They have probably floors somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> the high quality writing will only ever appear in these magazines. So if you want to join <laughs> in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since you're KingCast listeners, you are in the family. You can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout and you will save a whopping 25% off your order. That's KingCast at checkout. And all of that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today is a Jill of many trades, an Australian transplant now classing up Austin, Texas, a former DJ, a magazine centerfold turned OnlyFans cosplayer extraordinaire, a highly entertaining Twitter personality with uh, hundreds of thousands of followers that she is constantly surprising with kitty photos online. And last but certainly not least, and on the same note, a friend to the animals, particularly cats whose work with Austin Pets Alive should serve as an example to us all. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Ms. Laura Lux. Laura, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you here. You and I have been following on Twitter, uh, one another on Twitter for a while, and we've, we've talked a few times before. I just realized the other day you were doing something very funny on there. I was like, we should get Laura on the show. She seems like she'd have <laughs> something to say about all this. Are you a horror fan in general? I'm a huge horror fan. Right on. What's your what's your preferred flavor of, of horror? 
My favorite of all time is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, right mm. on. Did this have any bearing on you moving to Texas? I mean, no, it probably should have <laughs> been a deterrent. <laughs> but, right. um, no, yeah, if you were I, paying attention, we were trying to warn you. <laughs> I did take a little trip out to the um, gas, the gas station, station barbecue mm-hmm. thing a couple of couple of months ago. I haven't been out there. I've been to the house, not the gas station. But I haven't you- been to the house. But the gas station's really cool. Like they have um, the van, like the original one from hmm. the oh, no movie. Shit. Yeah, it's really cool. Did you try the barbecue there? Is it good? We didn't. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Were you worried to try the barbecue, or are you just not a barbecue fan? I'm a barbecue fan, um, but we had gone out to Bucky's as well, and we ate oh. so many beaver nuggets, and then we, we got there, and we were just like, yeah, we're not really hungry. But you, sh- you should tell the people what a beaver nugget is, because I think that anybody yeah. who's never been been to Bucky's is going like, what, did you just eat a beaver? Like, what is it? Is like so chicken nuggets, but beaver? Or, or what a Bucky's is, for that matter. Bucky's is a Texas gas station. Um, it's like this famous Texas gas station, and it's I, I think it's the biggest gas station in the world, right? right. I don't know. I think I've heard that, but I don't know. It, that's what I think. It's like they have like, they like the Mall of America of, of gas stations, though. This isn't like calling saying gas station doesn't really. It's like seeing like a Walmart super center, yeah, you know, that has yeah. that has a, a legion of. <laughs> Of uh, pumps in front of it. Some Um, of those fucking places have like 200 pumps. It's nuts. Yeah, they're insane. Um, So their mascot is a beaver and they have these things called beaver nuggets, which I guess they're like candy corn. Like, no, not candy corn. They're like, I think it's kind of a popcorn thing, but it's not popcorn. I don't know how to describe it. Almost like caramel corn. You're right. Yeah, kind of. It tastes like that, but then it's, it's like, Corn puffs or something. It's it's definitely corn, but it's not just popcorn. <laughs> I don't really know how to describe right. it, but or like if you ever get the baked like white cheddar Cheetos that are like puffed, yeah, it's basically that texture, but instead of the cheese powder on it, it's like caramel. Mm-hmm. They're good. They're really fucking sweet and probably they're really good for you. But you know, if uh, you don't play your cards right, you could plow through a whole bag of those definitely. Which we know. did on the way. Like we went out to Bucky's and got beaver nuggets and then drove from there to the thing. And in that time we'd already eaten like almost a whole bag of beaver nuggets. <laughs> we were like, okay, we don't really need barbecue now. Yeah. That makes <laughs> sense. Your interest in horror definitely comes through in some of the cosplays you do. I, I know yes. you to be like, I, I, I see your photos and I think this person loves horror and they love the Simpsons. You know, we're, we're using a picture for your show card of you as, as Pennywise. Have you done any other Stephen King characters? I don't, think so i'm trying to think no i haven't because most of the ones i do sort of involve makeup and i don't really think there's i don't really know if there's anything else else that's kind of as recognizable that's true you couldn't very well do jack torrance i mean i guess you could but that would be yeah but it would be not really a makeup job (laughs) it's like yeah i guess that would be just like holding an axe i could maybe just like stand in front of something where i wrote all work, no play, blah, blah, blah. Like, right, right, right. But yeah, you, that would be more about like the location and props than the makeup and costume, I guess. You could do late stage uh, Collie and Trajan. Which one's that? <laughs> the bad guy <laughs> That's from, the sheriff Desperation. from Desperation. Oh, right. <laughs> Collie. <laughs> Collie. I forget his name. I just call him the sheriff. 
No one would know what that is, though. I don't think. I think people would look at that and be like, "She's a, she a diseased cop? Like what yeah, is? Yeah, just like a zombie cop or something. A mm-hmm. Melting officer of the law. Um, <laughs> so you know, you've got your your cosplay work, which you do, which is extremely elaborate, and I would I would recommend to anyone to check those uh, check those out. But also, your feed is like fifty percent cat photos. You do something which I think is fucking amazing and i would never be able to do it which is you foster kittens uh can you talk a little bit about that so i've been doing that for actually almost three years now i've fostered over 50 kittens generally i take in extreme medical cases because i work from home i have a lot of free time like that's one of the really cool things about you know my work just being only fans now i have so much free time so I get to spend a lot of it doing things I care about, which is kittens. So I take in a lot of the extreme, like really sick medical cases of kittens because I'm like, well, I have more time to sort of be here monitoring them and devote to it than someone who's like working a nine to five. So yeah, yeah, I take in kittens. A lot of the time they're very, very unwell and I look after them for anything from usually like a couple of weeks to several months and then I find them homes and then I get new ones. Do you find them the homes or do they like place them and then they come to you and say, Hey, it's time to give up this particular kitten. So a lot of the time I find them the homes. Um, I use my social media to obviously like spread the word about them. So a lot of the time my kittens have homes lined up before they even actually go up on the Austin pets alive website. Right. But sometimes like they do get listed on the website and then people will email me through an application and say, I want to come and meet this kitten. And then I, you know, do an intro. And if it's a good fit, they take them home. Oh, that's cool. Uh, The reason I say I could never do this is I think it would just be so heartbreaking repeatedly. And I've seen you talk about this on online before, like the fact that you're totally cool with that. I think that is super admirable. I don't think I would have the emotional will to do that because I tend to get attached to animals like so quickly. And then. So the first time that I fostered, I was, my first litter was four kittens and like, I I really can't even put into words to explain how much I cried when they left. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, it was embarrassing. And this, like they went to four different homes and I, so I had to do it four times where I had, and they all, Got found. They all found homes through the Austin Pets Alive website. So these were complete strangers coming into my apartment to pick up these kittens. I was sobbing to a point that I was fucking hyperventilating, like couldn't even speak a sentence in front of these complete strangers like four times in the space of a week. And I was just like, oh, my God, like I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> like right. this is really, really hard. But I was like, no, I'm just – Surely it's going to get better. So I did it again, and then I cried again. And then the next time, you know, I cried a little less. And then the next time I kind of, like, felt tears welling up in my eyes, but I managed to keep it together, and then I cried when the kittens were gone. Now, you know, it's been three Not in front of the kittens. Yeah. (laughs) And now I'm just like, okay, bye. Like, if you have any problems, feel free to text me. And I don't have any emotions about it anymore. Hmm. I guess you would get you. I, I mean, obviously, you you would get used to it over time. I think, but man, that's- I think like over time, like this is what I try to tell people. Over time, you learn to be very selfless about it. Like the crying is 
ultimately selfish. It's going, oh my God, like my feelings, my feelings, it's all about me. But when you learn to like reframe it as a completely selfless thing and you see the positives in it, like watching people, especially when they have little kids and they come over to pick up their kitten and they are so excited and they're so happy Mm -hmm. and they're taking home this new kitten. And you sort of look at it like, wow, it's actually really cool that like I get to be a part of this and like to get to see like the joy that this family have. And like, you know, you're like, wow, like I helped do that. And I helped bring this kitten into their life and I helped make them happy. And like, that's really nice. And now I just picture you like on a parade float and like with a little basket of kittens and you're just throwing them out to all the kids. Like you get a kitten, (laughs) you get a kitten. Do you, where did, at what point along the line did you get, I, and excuse me, I forget her name, but the cat with, without eyes. Evie. Uh, Evie, yes. Um, at w- where in this timeline did you pick her up? I took her in as a foster in May last year. Long story short, I like right at the start of the pandemic, um, I had been dating a guy and I basically caught him cheating at the start of the pandemic. Um, he was my neighbor. We lived in the same building, like same floor, just a few doors down from each other. So <laughs> That's fucking he- ballsy. Yeah, it really sucked. Um, He didn't – I obviously broke up with him. He didn't take it well. He was not handling the breakup good at all. Um, (laughs) So I was kind of feeling like a prisoner in my apartment. Again, it's the fucking pandemic. We can't go anywhere. I was like, I can't leave my apartment because I don't want to run into him. So I messaged the um, shelter and I said, I I need a distraction. Just give me the sickest kitten that you've got. Like, just give me a challenge. (laughs) Give me something that's just going to like keep my mind busy, keep me at home. And they were like, we actually have one that we can pull from a shelter. I think that she came from Fort Worth or something. Some, she was at a high kill shelter somewhere out of Austin. Mm -hmm. They were like, we have one, like, she's in pretty bad shape. And I was like, I'll take her. So they transported her down to Austin and I picked her up the next day. The first time I looked at her, I just was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? Like, <laughs> I I just was like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. Like she weighed eight ounces. She was literally just skin and bones. Like she was anemic. She was so dehydrated and underweight. Her eyes were just these exploded masses of pus in her skull oh my god yeah she was and she just was Was she attacked or like what happened there we don't really know like she was only like three or four weeks old when i took her in um most likely she just got a really bad upper respiratory infection which if untreated will go into their eyes and can cause them to rupture gotcha so but the way that her eyes ruptured was a little different to how it would normally happen. So the vets think that she may have also had congenital glaucoma. Um, so it's most likely that her mom just abandoned her because mother yeah. cats will often just abandon the sick ones that, you know, aren't going to make it. So she was completely on her own. So I took her in and, yeah, I'd, she she was never supposed to be a permanent fixture so I had this kitten I looked after her um every day for two months I had to sit there several times a day and like wrap her up like a burrito in a little um hand towel and like clean her eyes with several different ointments and had to put all this shit in them and she was so sweet and so good she never complained like she just was so easy to look after and I had to wait till she weighed two pounds before she was able to have the surgery to remove her eyes because they just were these 
they were completely ruptured. Like there was no saving them. Right. Um, so yeah, I looked after her every single day and the thought of keeping her had never even crossed my mind. Like it wasn't something that I had been debating. It just had never even been a thought that I'd had. Right. And then I took her in for the surgery. She finally got big enough and I took her in for the surgery and I brought her home. And that afternoon I was sitting with her and I walked into the room that I had her in and she just, she literally just had her eyes removed. She, her face was shaved. She was the most hopeless looking thing. She had a giant cone on her head, but the second she would hear my voice, she would come running over to me purring and jump on my lap. And I just Mm -hmm. went, Oh God, this is my cat now. (laughs) And I adopted her a couple of days later. Yeah. There's no going back at that point. Yeah. I just, I, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I did. I and I hadn't even like thought about it, but just that one day, it just all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh shit, she's mine." <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was kind of curious about. Is like how often, you know, uh, some uh, a, a cat you pick up to be fostered is eventually adopted into you know your home, but it sounds like that doesn't happen very often. And this was a special case, so yeah. I have I another you. one um, that was a foster that I ended up keeping. Um, her name's Holly. I love her. Like, and I always feel bad telling the story because I feel like I'm saying I regret keeping her or whatever. I absolutely don't regret it. I love her. Like, she's a great cat. But if I knew then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have kept her. She was one of my first litters. I think she was either the second or the third. And Mm -hmm. she was the first one that I really was like, wow, this is a really special cat. And I just didn't know how to say goodbye to her. So I kept her. And in hindsight, I'm kind of like, there's been a lot of Hollies. Like, (laughs) you know, there's been a lot of, she's, again, she's a great cat. I love her so much. I'm glad I kept her. But it was just, the reason I kept her was I was just inexperienced. And I didn't fully understand the saying goodbye to a cat that I had bonded with because now I've bonded with so many, but I don't feel any urge to keep them because I understand the process. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. I can see that being the case. In addition to your, your work with cats, you are also a fan of Stephen King. What is your Stephen King origin story? Which is to say, you know, first book you read, first movie you saw, like when did, when did he first come into your life? So for me, it's been a thing since early childhood. Um, as a kid, I was always super into ghosts and horror stuff and like vampires. Like I'm talking like really little. And my dad is actually an avid Stephen King reader as well. So he always had a lot of Stephen King books around the house. Um, and we had like a like a storage room, I guess, and like dad had all his Stephen King books in a box. And I would sneak in there and I would take them and I would try and read them. And I'm talking like this was the first house I lived in and we moved out of there when I was eight. So I'm talking like seven years old probably. (laughs) Um, And I was trying to read Stephen King because I was a super smart kid. I was reading way above my, you know, standard age level. Obviously not. I wasn't reading at Stephen King level, but I was trying. (laughs) So um, the first one that I read was it. The first one I attempted to read was it. So I had the longest one, dude. I know. So I had snuck into the storage room and, um, I had taken this copy of it 
and I was trying to read it and there was so much in it that I didn't understand. So I would just kind of flick through the pages to like the scary parts where the clown showed up. Like I remember Mm -hmm. I used to read the (laughs) chapter. um, Is it, I forget who it is, where they're in the library. Ben. Hmm. It's Ben. Yeah. So the chapter where he's in the library, I used to read that chapter all the time. Um, and I would get so scared that I would start crying and then (laughs) my parents would hear me crying. So I would rush to hide the book under my bed and they would come in and they would be like, why are you crying? And I'd be like, I don't know. I'm just scared. And they were like, what is wrong? And then after like a couple of weeks of this, they found the Stephen King book under my bed and they were like, why are you reading this? (laughs) (laughs) Did they take it away? Like, was it forbidden for you to be reading these books? I don't remember. So they weren't yeah, like I, they weren't working against it. They were just not aware of it and you knew to maybe keep it to yourself. Yeah, I think like I kind of because I remember maybe even before I started reading it, I remember it being on TV as a kid. Yeah. And me like sneaking out of my bedroom and my parents were watching it. And I think I remember I had like crawled out of my bedroom and I was like hiding behind the couch peeking around and watching it and again scared the shit out of myself and your folks didn't know you were in the room no because i they were watching the tv and i had like snuck behind the couch and i remember being really scared of that and then i was like oh my god i like want to read the book we've talked about this frequently on the show uh the idea of what a big deal that miniseries was when it aired i'm assuming that you're you know the time period we're talking about is when you're still in australia right Mm mm-hmm um, was it a big deal down there? Like it was? Oh, here? Yeah. 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 It was huge. Did y'all yeah, I, were miniseries like a common thing down there? Like I, I know that our theory is that there were just less options for people to watch at that time. So those things became events naturally. Yeah, that was makes it, sense. I feel like it was, I do remember it being a big thing when I was a kid. And I remember like, I remember kids talking about it in yeah. that era. Like mm-hmm. I, I remember kids all talking about it because it was in like the 90s, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is like yeah. 91, I believe. Yeah. I remember kids talking about it. And every like I remember kids being scared of it and like kids talking about it. So it, it was obviously something that we had all, I guess – either heard about or like seen a little bit of on TV or whatever, but like we all kind of knew about it. So it was definitely a big thing. It's fascinating to hear that it was just as big of a deal in in Australia. I'm trying to compare it to like as huge of a pop culture impact that the, the feature film version had, but there's something about it being on TV, which was supposedly more safe that I think more parents let their kids watch it. Yeah. You know, because Mm -hmm. it's like a, for a mini series, on you know uh, just network television, I think a lot more parents were just like cool, going oh yeah no it's fine if it's on TV it's fine. Um, and you watch it now, it's I mean Tim Curry still rules in it, and it still you know has some really creepy moments. But you watch it now and you go oh well you know it's not all that scary. It's not really shot moodily, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like it, it does feel very TV ish. And as an adult, you watch it go it's, oh yeah that's not bad, not, you know not compared to you know, some of the creepiest movies, but um, I I think because it's weirdly quasi family friendly that, Mm -hmm. that it's still, but it still has the rough edge because Pennywise is still really creepy that it it hits this really unique spot where the adults 
remember it fondly from when it aired and the kids were all fucking terrified of it and scarred yeah, by I it. Yeah, I just feel like <laughs> yeah. every kid in my generation grew up scared of it. So we obviously yeah. all watched it. Like, right. And I, like, my memory of watching it is, like I said, sneaking out behind and hiding behind the couch and just watching a part of it. And then I'm pretty sure mom and dad caught me and sent me to bed. Um, <laughs> but at that same time, I actually had a friend. So like my best friend in kindergarten, first grade, whatever I was in, her parents were divorced. So she just lived with her mom and her mom was very irresponsible. That's probably the only <laughs> way I can put it. Um, so me and my friend, her name was Bernadette. We were um, both big on ghost stories and horror mm. and whatever. Um, again, this was before I was eight years old. So her mom would take us to Blockbuster and basically say, you can get any movie that you want. So we were going to the straight to the horror section and just picking out movies that had like the creepiest covers. And right. we would sit at her house and watch them. And every single time my parents would come and pick me up and I would be crying because I was so scared. <laughs> and they would be like, oh, my God, like, please stop letting our daughter watch these movies. <laughs> like, I remember they let us, she got us um, Creep Show 2. <laughs> yeah. And you know the third <laughs> thing in that, the hitchhiker? You're right. Yes. Oh yeah, my thanks God. for the ride, lady. Oh, yeah. my God. That terrorized me as a child. <laughs> so I watched that, and then every single time we were in the car at night, I would be, like, crying and, like, looking in the rear-vision mirror because I thought that the man in the yellow jacket was going to come and fuck us up. <laughs> and my parents were so mad about it. So I don't know if, like, that is how I originally watched the full version of it at her house. Like, it probably was, but I don't remember. Right. It's funny you you talk about sneaking down and like watching stuff from behind the couch because I, I did that a lot when I was a kid too. Uh, like my mom would you know past my bedtime I would just kind of sneak sneak back out and watch whatever they were watching. And oddly enough, the movie that sticks out to me of of like little me having my hands like on the back of the couch, like kind of in my eyeballs peeking up over, you know, that I remember doing that with is an Australian movie. It's an Australian uh, made for TV movie called Fortress. And, oh. uh, uh, and it's more of a thriller than a horror movie, but it's, uh, uh, it's all about this class of like middle school or early high school, maybe kids that are out on a, uh, a field trip and they get taken hostage by a bunch of dudes wearing masks and each mask is like a different uh a holiday character so there's one that's like father christmas there's one that's an easter bunny and and all this stuff and then so they get captured and and they the the bad guys are like never take off their masks right so you get that really creepy you know almost slasher vibe from these things and and like the it's up to the like the new young teacher to uh, uh, to save the kids and, and all set. And of course, like the, the outback where they're like kind of in the desert and, you know, and having to survive the elements and escape from, from, from these, these guys. And I remember really creeping me out. And then I also remember like, just never um, like remembering because I never, I didn't choose to watch it. So I didn't remember the title. And, and it was one of those where it wasn't until I was like in my late twenties that I finally, figured out what that <laughs> that thing was and then I bought it on on DVD and rewatched it and of course it's not you know nearly as creepy as I remembered it but uh I've never know, even heard of, of it yeah me neither yeah, you I should check think. it out um oh. but it, it was like you know kind of a oddly for 
formational formational foundational yeah, i don't know we'll take it. it 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 was a formative experience for me you know watching that stuff and there's something about doing doing that at that age where you're where it feels more forbidden and then it like you know you're just more in the moment when you're when you're kind of sneaking something like that and it, and it sticks with you in a way that you know just kids i guess today just scrolling through netflix without a parental control or something would be you know mm-hmm. like my version of this i didn't like just logistically, it would have been impossible for me to sneak into the room and get behind the couch the way the living room was set up. Right. But what I would do is, you know, um, if I were watching some, it, it was generally generally like HBO shit, you know, kind of late at night. You know, anything with a lot of sex and violence in it, I was into as as right. as a kid, right? And there was, there was a button on the remote. I forget what it was labeled, but it was something like, you know, Switch or something like that. And what you would do is like if you were on, say, Nickelodeon and then you went to HBO, you could hit the switch button and it would take you from the channel you were on to the previous channel. Mm -hmm. And so I would just Mm -hmm. sit there with that thing in my hand. And then if one of my parents walked into the room, I would hit the button and it would like, (laughs) you know, go from Tales from the Crypt to like fucking salute your shorts or whatever was on (laughs) at, at Nickelodeon. And that's that's how I got kind of around it. But but also my parents were pretty permissive. So. It was just when I was like watching stuff that was for clearly purian interests, you know, not like yeah. mm-hmm. not like a full blown horror movie or something that I could be like, you know, grappling onto the story or, or something right. like that. Now, the talk about miniseries is actually a pretty good setup to, you know, the movie we're talking about today, which was supposed to air as like sort of a mini miniseries uh, in two <laughs> parts. Eventually, they they. uh just decided to air it all in one like three hour block of programming or something. And that is desperation. Very excited to talk about this one because this is a title we have not talked about on the show before. Um, and it's one that's been pretty oft requested from the listeners. Laura can, first of all, why did you pick this one? And then can you tell us what this story is about? So I picked desperation because um, it's one that I guess I have like a funny kind of childhood memory of. Like I said, I started reading Stephen King books quite young. Um, and once I had really gotten into them, my grandpa was also a big, big Stephen King reader. So when we would go down to the city to visit my grandparents, my grandpa would often give me a new Stephen King book to read. Like this was once I was in my teens. I'm talking like would have been about probably ninth grade. So he would give me a different one right. to read and he – had given me his copy of Desperation to read. And um, it happened to coincide with, as part of our, like, I guess, ninth grade English class, we had to do a book report. So we had a list of tasks. We had to choose a book and then we had, like, a list of tasks that we had to complete, like, regarding that book, like, you know, talk about the themes in it, blah, blah, blah. One of the things was you have to draw a picture of a scene from the book. (laughs) (laughs) I like where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I I, I was, you know, not a bad artist back in the day. I drew a picture of a street sign that said, welcome to desperation with a dead dog nailed to it and the sheriff standing (laughs) next to it holding a shotgun. And it was really graphic. (laughs) Anyway, my parents got called in to um, have a chat to the teachers about it. So they were like, um, 
what's wrong with your daughter? Why is she drawing this? And they were like, yeah, we're really sorry. Like um, she's reading Stephen King. (laughs) So (laughs) that's why I picked it. So it's about, I actually haven't read the book probably since around then. I think I would have reread it once in my early 20s, but that was a long time ago. So Mm -hmm. I just watched the miniseries for the first time very recently. Um, so basically it's about this town called Desperation. Um, it starts with a couple who are going on a road trip and they get pulled over by the sheriff and his behavior is very erratic and he ends up, um, arresting them and then he takes them into the prison and they start realizing he's fucking crazy and his skin's weird and there's something going on and he ends up killing the man and then throwing the girl in jail with some other people and you sort of realize that there's some shit going on and it turns out he is possessed by this demon called Tack, which has come out of the mines and he's running around killing people and everyone in the town is dead and you get the picture right Mm -hmm. yeah and that's like such a great setup this is like one of those uh king books that like hits the ground running um, where like right, right off the very top, the something that I really love that he does with Kali here is that every single encounter, we see him do this to like what two people. And then there's been, then we get the backstory of what he did to the other people that were already in, in jail when in, in the little prison, um, uh, when you meet them and each and every one of them in the book anyway, like it is, they don't play it exactly the same in the movie, but, uh, uh, he has the same shtick where it's like he has this nice guy routine that he does mm-hmm. right before before he like reveals his craziness and each each time uh, like it just kind of barely uh, ekes out where he has these ticks where he just like will go tack you know recent or he'll do something weird like he gives the Miranda rights and says you know he throws in you know and I'm gonna kill you you know into the Miranda somewhere you know these little things it's like super creepy uh, but it, it's super creepy because up until that point he's been like super nice and and kind and you know and uh like he there's a writer that that's going cross country on a motorcycle that he turns out he's a big fan of you know and he's like giving career advice and and they start like bouncing ideas off of each other about the new book and the writer's like super impressed by this guy and then uh of course uh he he shows us his true face it's it's a really great setup and uh and what I love about it is is you you have this kind of thing where you get all this backstory for all these characters, including this family that was pulled over and and you know it's a mom and dad and two kids and by the time we meet him, like one of the kids, the little girl is dead at the bottom of the the stairs to the you know that he, he killed this little girl like right in front of him and like everybody's just instantly traumatized uh, and it becomes like a how do we get away from this crazy person? that spirals uh, ridiculously out of control. The opening, I agree with you on the opening. And I think it's like one of the more, one of his more iconic openings. And I think it's because it's playing on that, you know, fear just about everyone has of being pulled over by a cop. You know, even if you don't have anything in your car, even if you're, you know, well within your rights and you don't even know what you've done wrong, you know, it's, it's, that shit sucks every time. I get nervous. It's just, if I'm even driving and there's a cop behind me 
And I'm like, I'm not oh, doing yeah. anything yep. wrong. <laughs> like yep. I, I'm literally, I'm driving the speed limit. I'm not playing with my phone. I'm my car is registered. <laughs> like I, I'm not yep. doing anything wrong. But I'll still sit there if there's a cop behind me, and I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I'm gonna get pulled over. <laughs> like, fuck yeah. yeah. What's your what move? Speedometer's wrong. What if I'm going over the speed limit and I don't uh-huh. realize it? <laughs> yeah. What's your move in those situations? Do you change the lane? Or do you stay in front of the cop and just like gripping the steering wheel? Like what's your approach? Oh my God. So I'm like, I'm a pretty nervous driver anyway, especially in this country because um, I sort of, I actually only started, finally got my license in America about a year ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm still, and I don't really drive much. So I'm still kind of um, really getting used to like just the different rules and like being on the other side of the road because every now and then I do revert back to Australia brain and then I will Mm. like look the wrong way and it's like really scary um so I tend to like if there's a cop behind me I like really try to like slow down like there's been times where I've got so in my head about it that I would like pull off into a side street and just sit there and wait for them to leave and I'm like why am I so frightened I'm not doing anything (laughs) wrong but I get so much anxiety about it that I'm like oh I'm just going to avoid this yeah no shit I will I I think more often than not I will switch lanes and just run the risk especially if I'm not like you know I don't know like I don't have any weed in the car or something like that you know Mm -hmm. if it's something like you know, I feel like I'm not doing anything wrong. I will change lanes and still be terrified about it. But staying in front of the cop, like, is just that that sucks so hard because of the, the just the anxiety of it. I got stuck like in between here and in uh, Houston once on like a stretch of two lane Ugh. where a fucking cop got behind me and followed for like, I shit you not, like 30 straight minutes. And, mm. and there was nothing I could do. You know, I couldn't go into the opposing lane. I couldn't really pull off, you know, without making a production of it. And it just and I'm thinking, like, either this guy just happens to be going the same way or, you know, usually what I think in those situations is they're just being like doing like a little power trip. But I always think the worst of cops. So, mm-hmm. of course, mm. I'm going to think that. Have you ever been pulled over and had like a deeply weird or unpleasant experience with a cop like? that people do at the very beginning of this story. No, I honestly haven't. But I'm like a, again, like I said, I'm a super nervous driver. So I'm a huge nerd. Like I do not touch my phone when I'm driving. I do not go over the speed limit. Like I'm a very, very like conscious of the rules. Don't like I'm, I'm a rule follower. (laughs) It's just in my blood. So I'm very like, I do not speed. Like, so I've never really given the cops a reason to pull me over. <laughs> One time I got pulled over very late at night. Um, and like Australian cops are like, they're really cool. Like, and they're kind of just funny. Like <laughs> so they will like joke around with you. Like, so I got pulled over. Uh, it was actually, I was working in a strip club and I was driving home. So this was probably at like 3am and I was starving. So I had gone through the McDonald's drive through And I was sitting at a red light. So I was facing one way and at the other side of the intersection facing me, there was a cop car and I'm sitting at this red light. I'm like shoveling these fries into my mouth because I'm so fucking hungry. And Mm. the light goes green and I go through and then the cops do a U-turn and they pull up behind me and they turn their lights on and they step over the car and they're like, yeah, we're going to need you to um, blow into this. And I blow it and I blow nothing because I hadn't been drinking. And they were like, oh, we thought you were drunk. And I was like, no, I'm just leaving work. And then they were like, 
we were watching you eat those fries and when you were eating them, we thought you were drunk. And I was like, wow, that's really embarrassing. I was like, no, I'm just hungry. Ma'am, you were eating these fries so ferociously. There was no way. <laughs> yeah, they were like, ma'am, we really like, we were watching you get into those fries and we really were like, yeah, this girl's wasted. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> I've just been working for like 10 hours on my feet and I'm fucking starving. And they, it was just right. like a couple of young guys and they were just like laughing about it and they were like, okay, have a good night. So that's kind of my, you know, experiences with being pulled over. Uh, Eric, that's have, a pleasant you, have you had one? Encounter? I had not. I mean, yeah, I've been pulled over once as a, as a kid. I got, you know, ticketed because uh, like I was so poor that I like I, I ended up like just not getting my insurance and registration on my car. Uh-huh. And some cop, some cop like just sat behind me at a, at a light and I guess decided to run my plates. And uh, and so I got like a fix it ticket, but it still cost like like 600 bucks or something to find it. And it was something where I couldn't really afford it. <laughs> and so I had to pay it off in installments and that was a pain in the ass. And ever since then, though, I guess it were, you know, the incentive works. Cause I'm now I like prioritize getting all that shit up to date or else I feel like super uh, nervous, just even like driving down to like the, the local grocery store or whatnot. Right. But I had one really aggro experience. Well, I've had two really bad experiences with police, one in another country, but uh, I had one here in Austin. In uh, do you remember the South by Southwest where the guy like plowed through the, oh, like, yeah. the crowd in the car? Yeah. Um. So I was I was there. Um. You know I was attending that South by and like one or two days later, um, I was trying to go to an event at Auditorium Shores and and trying to park and we were running late. It was like a movie <laughs> thing. I was running late and there was a car in front of me that like was going five miles per hour for some reason up to the parking garage and then just like stopped, you know, blocking two thirds of the, the intersection then like put on their hazards and started letting people out of this minivan or whatever that would, that it was. And, and I was like, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm running late. And so I, um, uh, I pull around them. Um, cause nobody else was, you know, coming down the other way. And so I, I go around them, but like when I hit the gas, it went, it lurched, my car lurched forward quick and it sounded worse than it was cause my, my tires like did a little screech, but I never went over like five or eight miles per hour. Right. It was just a, a, a quick start. Right. And when I, when I did that, there were like cops that were stationed right by the, uh, the place where the you know, you have to get your ticket to go into the parking garage. Um, and they like stood up and like put their fucking hands on their guns. And, and like, it, and I stopped, you know, with a jerk in front of them. Cause this is maybe 20 feet away from, from them. Again, I never went more than, you know, eight or 10 miles per hour during this whole thing. And like, but when I stopped a cop, like half ran up to my car and like, he pissed, like hit my hood, like punched the hood of my car and, and was just like, again, hands on his gun. He was just like, what are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. It's like, don't you, you know, after what happened two days ago, how, you know, you need like slow down and do all this stuff. That's so dangerous. And I'm just like, like, you know, sir, I just, you know, and I just, in my mind, I'm like, just apologize and, and be humble this whole thing because this guy was super duper. Like I, super aggro and i was just like man i gotta de-escalate there's no arguing with this guy if i, I don't want to get in trouble i would just start crying <laughs> and, and then then I, I felt super guilty too because i was just like yeah of course you know this after the trauma you know because everybody 
was like talking about that and you know people died when this guy like yeah. you know on 6th street like fucking drove into when did that a, a crowded line jesus that was what 8 9 10 years ago now yeah oh, was okay. it within so the last way before i was here yeah. yeah and uh but like but that still pisses me off now when i think back on it just how that cop reacted and how dangerous that that, that was and the fact that he like not like just like tapped or did like the open handed, you know, like, you know, pat on the, you know, whatever to uh, on my hood to make a point. But he literally punched my car. He was so pissed off. And I'm just like, the fuck is, is going on? Um, and then I had another experience in Mexico with a cop where um, I went to a set visit on some cheapy horror movie uh, that Sean Astin was in. I don't remember the name of the the thing but this was like maybe mid aughts mid to late aughts um and the set visit was in uh outside of tijuana and so i went to san diego and the publicist drove me over the border and uh and so i was like in the backseat of this car and and we just kind of went out into the you know the outskirts of of tijuana mexico uh which was kind of weird you know already uh because tijuana is a very seedy city and uh um and then we got pulled over and the uh, the people driving who worked with the production were just like, oh, you know, everybody be quiet. You know, like they didn't break the law or anything, uh, but apparently the cops were very notoriously um, corrupt there and they knew that this production was shooting. And so they knew that they had money. So essentially, like as the cop was walking up to the car, they said, don't worry, they just want to bribe. Um, so they're, you know, they're going to try to ticket us for something and essentially said that they either want to bribe or they're going to put us in jail, uh, you know, trying to get more money. Um, and I was just like the fuck. And, uh, and sure enough, they just wanted a bribe and they fucking like took a hundred us dollars or whatever from the, from, from the people, (laughs) you know, driving the car. So, so it was, uh, those are my two, uh, cop stories that, that jumped to mind. I've gotten pretty lucky in terms of scary cops. I've been pulled over plenty, but I'm I'm not really I'm I'm always like yes sir no sir that sort of thing, keeping a very even keel, you know, and uh, that seems to smooth anything over. But I did have like I did have an experience with what would be like the opposite of Kali and Trajan, which would be like the dumbest slash worst cop <laughs> I, I've ever seen. Like just no investigative skills because what happened was. God, how do I explain this? Uh, fucking. Okay. So a friend of mine, she and I used to have a podcast where we would do like really, really stupid things and then talk about it after we had done it. That was the whole premise of the show. And so somewhere along the line, we got it into our head that we were going to find the the tallest peak outside of Austin, like a mountain or more likely a very large hill, and then carry a boat up the side of it and back down the other side, like in Fitzcarraldo, the Werner, Werner Herzog movie, mm-hmm. where so obviously the question is like, how are you going to fucking lift a boat with two people? So what we did was we built a boat using uh, like a hacksaw, um, duct tape and pool noodles. You know what pool noodles are, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Those are like big things. So we built what is essentially a giant rowboat. Out of these things, and um, there it's all like rainbow colored, so very eye catching. This this monstrosity, and I had it in the I had the back seat of my car laid down, and I had the boat in the back seat, the fake boat, um, <laughs> because we were we were about to you know try to go have this experience. Well, I get pulled over by 
like I, I took an unprotected red at a light or some shit like that. Like I didn't see a sign or whatever. Some some minor traffic infraction. Fucking cop lights me up like right behind me, pulls me over. And uh, he gets up to the car and he's talking to me through the window. He takes my license, registration, all that, runs it, comes back. He's talking to me a little for a bit. You know, he's not going to write me a ticket. He's giving me a warning. And then he like as he's talking, he looks over my shoulder into the back seat and he sees this, you know, giant rainbow colored fucking rowboat made out of pool noodles. And he goes, uh, hey, what's that in the back seat? And I like turned and looked around and saw it. You know, I, I can't explain everything I just explained to you in, to the cop. You know, well, it's for a podcast, but, you know, we're going to we're going to carry it. And then I got to explain, like, what Fitzcarraldo is to this fucking state trooper, <laughs> you know, and it, it's like it's just way too much shit. And what my brain came up with, the only words that came out of my mouth were that's for uh, that's for something else. And the cop and I just <laughs> and the cop and I just like made direct eye contact. And then he went like on top of my hood or on top of my, you know, roof. And he was like, all righty, then get out of here. That was it. No further <laughs> questions. He didn't investigate. Like, what does that mean? That's for something else. Like, as opposed to what? Like, I would have something for this interaction. Like, the cop just didn't. <laughs> he just gave up immediately. Upon, so I don't have the time for this today. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on here, but it's probably safe. So I'm just going to leave it alone. <laughs> but no, I've been I've been mostly lucky with cops. But I do think the opening this book preys on that. On that uh, universal fear, which is something that oh, for sure, you know, Definitely. as we've noted, King is you know very good with one of the powers that Tack has in this novel, like and and in the Mick Garris TV movie, is that he can control various desert animals, you know, a cougar, mm -hmm. spiders, snakes, scorpions, bats, eagles, all kinds of shit. Right? I'm wondering, Laura, which of these you would be most concerned to be. Uh, confronted by if they were possessed. You worried about the well, vultures, point, the snakes? What is it? There's a point where he controls a um, like mountain lion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So probably that. I feel like that's going to probably be the worst one to encounter, right? But then again, I don't, I don't like spiders. Yeah, me neither. So You could outrun a spider. I don't know if you could outrun a cougar. Yeah, I, I think I think in terms of just like you know, deadliness and like being able to get away. I think the cougar is probably like the most dangerous. Right. Yeah. That's the one that makes the most sense mm. to be scared of, but like just on a pure gut level, uh, to me, it's the rattlesnake. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm typically, I'm not crazy about snakes, but I'm also not super duper like snake phobic, but rattlesnakes for whatever reason, it's just, I think it's the, the, the the combination of the rattle and when they do that, they're like curled up and coiled and looking ready to strike. Mm -hmm. That really fucks me up. I think I tie it back to a memory, actually, because I went to a uh, something in the Bay Area when I was a kid. There was like a field trip to um, was it, I want to say it's the Monterey Bay Aquarium, but I don't know why they would have snakes at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It might have been the San Francisco Zoo, but I went on a field trip to a zoo in the Bay Area and they had this uh, snake exhibit where they had like it was like a wall that was plexiglass and had little cubby holes and each in the cubby holes is a different snake that you could like look at just through the plexiglass and yeah. i remember there was there was one that was like you know just a little too high up for me to see uh but they're like little 
little things that I could like pull myself up with, you know, cause it wasn't just a flat wall. Mm-hmm. It was like these little cubbies. So I, I like put my fingers in this like wedge thing and I pulled myself up and like in a movie, it, it maybe it's possible that my child brain is, is mixing this with the shot in Raiders of the Lost Ark whenever Indy's climbing the <laughs> rope and he gets up, you know, he's going in the well of souls and he, he's climbing the rope up and then he, he sees the snake like looking at him right in his face. Mm-hmm. That is, that is the way I remember doing that. And I pull myself up and it's a rattlesnake and it like strikes the glass, like an inch in front of my, my face and then like terrified me. Um, but to, to this day, like, rattlesnakes like really creep me out just specifically yeah um and so we're on my gut like i i don't give a shit about spiders or scorpions i obviously don't want to get bit or stung by either one but uh uh but the rattlesnake you know just kind of freaks me out so that'd be my answer fair enough i feel like i'm not really like i've never seen a rattlesnake in real life i don't think so anyway but i feel like i mean i grew up in the australian outback so, yeah, you must American be used to all kinds of spiders and snakes. I'm kind of, I've never been scared of a spider in America, like Australian <laughs> okay, ones, we- sure, but ones here, like I'm just kind of like it's small, and I'll just like kill it with my hand, like I don't care. Yeah, y'all <laughs> big ass spiders down there. What's the, yeah, what, you have what's the biggest one you've seen with your own eyes? Unexpected. Uh, definitely like a huntsman. Um, they're like a relatively common-ish house spider in australia and they're like with their legs included like the size of your hand fuck that like their (laughs) body can be like about the size of a quarter i guess oh that's not well yeah i guess if they have yeah okay i see what you're saying yeah so it's like they got the body like the size of a quarter and then like big long furry legs and they're not actually poisonous to humans like if they bite you it will hurt but they can't actually you know, kill you or anything. They just look so fucking gross. Yeah, they do. They look alien. And it's, oh, and it's like, the thing is with a huntsman is like most of your interactions with them is like, you know, if you're like outside with the hose, it's like a huntsman crawling out of a drain or Mm. driving. And one like fucking comes out of the vents and like runs across your windshield. Like, (laughs) oh, it's, they're awful. (laughs) So I feel like American spiders, I'm kind of like, eh, that's small. (laughs) I mean, there's probably some like desert ones that are bad that I've never seen. For sure. And I I know I've seen pictures of spiders like from Australia where it's like, hey, like someone on Twitter is just like, hey, look at the spider I found in my shed or whatever. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it looks like a special effect. It's so big. You're Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck are y'all doing down there that's creating these, these nightmarish nightmarishly huge things the only time i've seen like a big spider in real life in the states is like when i've specifically sought it out like looked at it in a zoo or you know there was like there's like an insect store here in austin and they'll let you like interact with them if you want to my my friend and i that had that other podcast i was talking about we went there one time to let tarantulas crawl on me because spiders are like my big thing mm-hmm. um and i was trying to conquer my fear or some shit that fear remained conquered for about three weeks and then i went right back to being like pretty scared <laughs> of spiders so you know i'm glad i did it but whatever and those were like tarantulas those were fucking big but i do think you're right i think the cougar's the most dangerous that's the that's the yeah. thing to be concerned about here Laura, you're a big fan of the book, but what did you what did you think having caught up with the movie now? What how did you feel about that? So we just I watched it with a friend um like very recently. 
Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it before. And I, I sort of remembered the vague story from the book, but I didn't remember it well. Like I remembered that there was the sheriff and like the demon called Tack and that it had come from the mines and whatever. I thought the miniseries was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like I thought it was um, like they cast the sheriff really well. Um, Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman, yeah, he was great as um, the Call sheriff. Um, I felt like one thing that I would have really liked to see in the movie was how exactly or the process of Tack passing from human to human. Yeah. Because I feel like he's in the mum and then um, the other woman escapes. Like, because, you know, you know, he has her like locked in a shed because he's going to transfer to her eventually. Right. You know, it's like, what is the process? Because why didn't he just transfer to her then? Because the mum was clearly falling apart. Like the body was, right. you know, decomposing. And then when the woman escapes, he very quickly goes out of the mum into a vulture. But I'm like, why didn't he, like when they were about to go down into the mind and the vulture comes out and it attacks them, why didn't he just transfer into one of them then? Like why did he just stay in the vulture and then like where did he go? Good question. Right. The answer is well, probably that it's cool to have a vulture attack somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the book, they make a big point that he can't, that Tack wears out the bodies that that he's in, and, and especially and the, the reason why. he wears out really quick, right? It, the animals, th- theoretically, he would wear out so fast it wouldn't, uh, like, he would take over an animal, any animal, and then, uh, and then, like, within seconds, you know, the animal would be dead. Um, that he needs humans, but like when he's desperate, he finds an eagle. In the book, it's an eagle, and I guess because the eagles are big and powerful, that you know that they could sustain tack for a little bit longer. And it's also a scarier thing to get attacked by because if you've ever, ever seen uh, an mm-hmm. eagle in a zoo or something, those things, those motherfuckers are huge. You know, they're way much bigger than you think they are. It makes a little bit more sense for uh, an eagle to to fuck up somebody than it does a vulture <laughs> to be honest um and uh yeah but i mean the whole the whole conceit of this thing is that like when you meet this the sheriff at the beginning something's off he's got like a little bit of a skin problem but by the t- time you know <laughs> that like a couple hours pass or whatever uh like his skin is getting more and more fucked up he's like bleeding um and so essentially this thing is looking for uh, a host that doesn't have a problem. Like he takes over Kali and Kali turns out uh, to have uh, some kind of cancer, I believe, um, or, you know, some sickness that yeah. he didn't know about. And that's why, that's why he's, you know, decomposing when he takes over the, the mom, uh, she had a yeast infection and, and that infection combined with tack uh, in her body, like is wearing her out really fast too. So she he's decomposed just like, super fast. Yeah. yeah, so he's de- she's decomposing in in the miniseries. They do it, I think, more as a um, the decomposition thing, more as a way to just make her scary looking. Because mm-hmm. in in the uh, you know in the book, it takes a minute for her to kind of get to that final demon looking stage, and in the mo- in the movie, she just does it like the first time you see her. After yeah, the first time he you takes see her, her in the movie, she's like very clearly like demon yeah. mode, right. I think that the answer to the question that you propose is I think that whenever the the vulture dies in the miniseries, like tack, whatever it is, is what's in the, the China pit, right? right? That tries to take over the writer and and whatever that is, is, is in there. Um, so it just goes back 
to being hostless and needing somebody or some living thing to come come down in there to right uh, because my friend know, and i were both like why didn't like when the vulture was you know getting beat up why didn't tack there was like you know five humans there for him to be able to transfer right. into why didn't he transfer into them and i feel like it would have made more sense if i guess there was some kind of like ritual he needed to perform to be able to enter a human which is why he right. couldn't just do it at the drop of a hat like that because we obviously see him transfer just whoosh out of the mom into the vulture so i was like why didn't he just whoosh out of the vulture into one of those people it seems like he would need to incapacitate one because all they would have to do is like literally close their mouth for for, right. for that uh for that to work so you kind of need need something that would be incapacitated in some form um i think that's the the explanation they're going for but uh I mean, the real question for me is like, why not just instantly? Because one of the the main the main characters is this kid named David Carver, and he seems to be to me to be the most likely person. I mean, I guess you want somebody that's grown up for their strength or whatnot. But if you keep in, invading bodies that have health problems, it's like, why not go into the kid? He's he's not going to have cancer, or most likely not going to have cancer. You know, he's not going to have a grown up disease, right? So yeah, it's I also, wonder if like. The kid was so, like, you know, in – the kid was so, like, connected to God. Like, maybe Tak couldn't go into his body because of that, like – because of all his praying or whatever. Right. Right. Well, Also, it's a kid. He's just not going to be very strong. Yeah. Yeah, but he's going to live, you know, and at a certain certain point, he doesn't want to – keep the kid to to use the body he's just like fascinated by this kid because he senses that there's something different about him uh so i mean this this uh book has a lot in common with the stand in uh in that it's kind of a a god picked this group of people to stand up to this evil but it's it's so funny because we we recently did an episode um on revival and that kind of brought up the question of, of Stephen King hating organized religion. And like, he's hardly ever has religious characters that are good people, you know, are doing the right thing. Like mother Abigail stands out. And then David Carver, who's, who's a kid that like, if this was a kid that I met in school, like he, he would just be the, I'd almost be on, on Collie's side as like the Jesus boy. Cause all he talks about is God and, and doing mm-hmm. God's will and, and all that stuff. And it makes him, you know, he's, he's the a kind of kid much. I wouldn't have wanted. Yeah. yeah, he's 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 a little intense with his, his love of God and making sure that everybody was, knows that. That was something I thought, like in the miniseries, I was like, I don't remember any other Stephen King um, books or whatever being this heavy on like we're doing this for God. Like right. I was kind of like, I don't remember that because I, I have I did try to read The Stand when I was a teenager, and it uh-huh. just. I, it was too much for me. Like I wasn't yeah. quite ready to read it then, but I have been thinking I need to like reread it. But yeah, I didn't Great. remember anything else being really like God focused the way um, Desperation was. No, I'd yeah, forgotten all about it too before I watched this. Yeah. The miniseries is a little bit more grating in that respect because in the book, at least you get a full explanation of, you know, of why it is. And it's kind of a pure thing. And you hear inside of his head and you hear the the doubt. Um, and one of the underlying themes of this book is that God is cruel. And, you know, cause the David's mom has this whole, you know, kind of freak out in the jail cell when, you know, he's praying and trying to get in touch with God and, you know, to ask questions of like, what, what do we do now? 
you know, help us out of here. And um, he he has, uh, you know, God intervened when his his friend got in a, a horrible hit and run accident and uh, it was surely going to die. And then David Carver <laughs> prays to God and says, you know, and he wasn't a religious kid to begin with, but he's like, listen, if you save my friend, I'll do something for you in return, you know, just whatever you ask. And, uh, and then his friend miraculously survives and, and, you know, he was brain dead and now he's not and all this stuff. And so that's all the proof that David Carver needs, you know, to believe in God from that point out. But, uh, uh, the mom's furious at him because it's like, is this is the same God that killed your little sister, you know, right, right in front of us. He allowed that to happen. And by the end of it, fucking, uh, the mom die is, you know, mom dies, the dad dies and like the kid's an orphan his entire family goes. And one thing that I really like about the way that King wraps this up is that he doesn't go like, Oh cool. God came in and saved the day or whatever. It's like, yeah, God's going to ask you to do this and ask you for the sacrifice. And here the kid acknowledges that, that yes, God is cruel. It's like, God is also love, but it's also cruel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like God's a little bit of everything. I think even the miniseries keeps that last line, like God's everything. It's definitely one of King's most pro pro religious uh, stories, and I, again, the only ones I can really think of that do that are are the Stand and in this book. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that was and my friend who I watched it with um, the other night. She's also a huge Stephen King fan as well. Um, so it's like we talk about Stephen King movies a lot, and that was something she commented on as well. She was like, "Wow, like this is pretty heavily religious." She's like, "That's very different from what." he would usually do and i was like yeah i don't remember this being like so like pro i guess like the christian like christianity because it did seem to be the christian god that they were talking about yeah yeah it's a little i don't i i i think i agree with eric that it's a little more palatable in the book and that because the the miniseries version i keep calling it a miniseries technically it's a tv movie sorry mick garris if you're listening to this um (laughs) it's it it is the kid comes across pretty pious and i just find that any of that shit to be very grating i would rather it be an like an evil religious fundamentalist character that i can easily hate (laughs) rather than like a little a little kid who's just trying to do good and i'm like annoyed by him you know what i mean like like that just makes me feel bad so yeah um and the and there's a lot of self-doubt that he has in the book that you because you're inside of his head, you know, where it doesn't and he's more of like laid back. Right. Where it's just like, I'm just doing this because this is the right thing to do versus, you know, I'm going to quote some Bible verses now and and I'm going to sit and pray and and then dictate what my God wants all these random strangers to do. You know, and literally do the loaves and fishes thing with some sardines. I'd ground this yeah. child and send them to their room pulling a party <laughs> trick like that. <laughs> Uh-uh. You know, I and didn't the, even get that sardines reference till now. <laughs> Here is another complaint I have about the movie, and it's sort of a it's sort of a backhanded complaint because it's not really. Well, here's the deal: I think I, I have the same complaint about the novel, and then it's I, I love Kali, the character, and then you know once you realize it's it's he's possessed and you're, he's going to go to different bodies, and then he's gone mm-hmm. out of the story. I think the story suffers for it a little bit because that character is so interesting. And I think the TV Mm -hmm. movie is very similar in that Ron Perlman is obviously having such a fucking blast playing this role. You just kind of want to watch him through the whole thing. You know, I know this would like go against the text if it just stayed in one body the whole time. And that makes the whole tat character less interesting. But 
really like once once Perlman's out of the picture, it's I feel like the the movie suffers for it because he casts such a huge shadow over everything right. else. If that you know, sense. now that you mentioned that, I because like I said, I haven't read the book for over ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that you mentioned that, I think that that's something I actually I remember thinking once the sheriff is out of it, it wasn't as interesting. Right, like well, he could, was yeah. just such a cool like you know, scary character. He was so good. And I think I do remember like reading the book and then just kind of being like, oh, now the sheriff's not in it. It's like, you know, not as exciting. Yeah. Hmm. And it's and it, and it undermines that original pitch or, you know, the initial inciting event of the, the novel where it's playing upon your natural fear of cops, right? So once mm-hmm. the cop is out of it and it's just like random people, I don't find that as scary. The idea yeah. of a cop who is ostensibly supposed to be there to serve and protect and blah, 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 blah. It's a perversion of that. That's what makes it even scarier. Making it just like some some guy who happens to be in this town at the same time or a woman in 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 some cases. It's just not as frightening to me. And it's, it's not yeah. as And I think also like when the vet is talking about Collie and he says like he's gotten taller since he last yeah. saw him and everyone's like, that's not possible. But just even things like that where you're like, it's. I guess like his transition from being a cop to being the whatever he is possessed by tack, it's more fleshed out, I think. And you're kind of like, wow, like this is all the changes that have happened to him. And it seems scarier to think like he's suddenly like grown and he's bigger and now he's like falling apart. Yeah. Transforming. This uh, thing was kind of, you know, God bless McGarris for trying to take this on because this is one of those really difficult King adaptations. This isn't an easy one because kind of like Lisey's story, it's got a bunch of really cheesy fucking made up shit words and stuff that that are repeated throughout Mm. uh, that like can work on the page. But like once you hear it out loud, it it, it is just kind of silly. And I uh, revisited this listening to the audio book, which is narrated by King himself and hearing him. (laughs) say this stuff with his own voice is funny as fuck because you know (laughs) he's got his his you know main accent and everything he's like tack Allah you know and and that that phrase is repeated about 427 times and over the course of the novel um did he do a cameo uh, in the miniseries we didn't see him but there weren't really any alive characters that you saw that weren't the main ones right. so i didn't see him either but i think he because he usually it, does right and especially with mick Garris, I, yeah 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 and my friend and i were talking about it and we were like we didn't see him but you literally don't see aside from the main cast there is no no one else alive right there was there's not there's one other Vietnam living flashback and then there's the um the like the, oh, yeah, the, the moviola you know backstory that they that they do which again like fucking you know bless McGarris for for taking on this like <laughs> nearly impossible task to make this like actually work on the big screen and I don't think it does work and or the small screen in this case but I and I don't think it really does work here but you know one of his solutions to getting all the backstory of what how attack was released in the China pit and, and uh, you know, and all that stuff is David Carver instead of God, like, you know, him praying and you kind of God giving him a vision. Like he just sits there and <laughs> looks at a moviola in the projection yeah, just booth, looks through the projection you know, thing. <laughs> and, and it plays like a, an old, old timey fucking silent film and shit, which doesn't make a goddamn bit of sense. <laughs> anyway, 
and ink plays through the whole you know history of back in the day when they had like kind of chinese slave labor you know digging in that that mine and they uncover these little um uh it, it, can can tax is that what they call them the little idols something like can that yeah, so, yeah. I, that's it yeah. i just don't know if that's how it's pronounced i think that's correct yeah. though yeah 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 that should be right it's all it's very clunky and like i think even when we had um steven weber on like he kind of shit talked <laughs> shit shit talk this movie a little bit too and just like it just didn't work you know one thing that i do like about it is is that they use so many stephen king vets in it yeah like pretty much everybody that's in this movie has done multiple stephen king movies like matt frewer of course was in uh the stand and he was in the lawnmower man sequel tom scarrett was in the dead zone mm-hmm. you know as well mm-hmm. stephen weber of course has been in a billion stephen king things uh henry thomas has been now in a billion stephen king things i um, like that he's in like the janet lee role from psycho here where you're like oh, right. they, got, oh they got henry thomas for this that's cool Play, no, playing a character dead. named peter jackson no less <laughs> yeah and perlman was in sleepwalkers as well that's right so yeah. yeah, it is it is sort of a homecoming for them. I like I like the way it looks. And I think that, you know, while it's obviously constrained by the budgetary and content related, you know, restrictions that come with being on network television, there's some striking imagery in it. The town like the town remi- the way he shoots the town kind of reminds me of um U-turn, the Oliver Stone movie. Y'all fuck with that movie? You ever seen it? I yeah. I think I've seen it. Oh, I I love that movie. It's just the most mean spirited little (laughs) neo-noir thriller thing. It's like Sean Penn. He owes some mobsters in Vegas a bunch of money. He's trying to get there, driving through the desert, ends up in like the worst small town you can possibly imagine, populated by just an insane cast of characters, each one more evil or undermining than the last. Like Joaquin Phoenix is in it. Jennifer Lopez. Claire Danes, Billy Bob Thornton. It's got everybody in that. Nick Nolte. It's got everyone in that fucking movie. And it's just, again, real dark and mean-spirited and fucked up. Um, Definitely seek that out. Yeah, I'll have to watch it. But that, like, desert town aesthetic where it's all just dusty and it kind of looks abandoned, that that reminds me of, you know, how they shot uh, Desperation in this. Um, We read that they shot it, I think, in Arizona, I think. Yeah, Tucson. Brisbane. Apparently, like, there was one day when it was so windy, a bunch of the production shit got ruined. Yeah, it also caught a, caught a fire. They That's a right, set. yeah, and the whole set got destroyed, like... Yeah. But, and uh, another little fun fact I dug up was that the scene where, like, Scarrett comes out of the... In the Vietnam flashback, he comes out of the club before the bomb goes off. was, like, built... That club was, like, built in a storefront that was across the street from uh, the Congress Hotel. And that is the hotel that John Dillinger and his men used to stay at when they would pull through Tucson mm-hmm. whenever they were uh, out there doing their shenanigans and crimes and what have you. That That's was kind of cool. cool. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I think I, I like this one more than I dislike it. The movie version. I just thought I it was de- kind of fun. You know, it wasn't yeah. great. It wasn't great. It was just kind of fun. Like, you know, it, there was some plot holes and there was definitely a, a lot of stuff missing from the book, but there always is in any Stephen King screen adaptation. Um, but, you know, my friend and I had a good time watching it. And like we said earlier, Ron Perlman was great. And it's it's cheesy in that way that like, I mean, 
it's got a 90s cheese feel to it, I think. It's mm-hmm. it was like filmed in 2004 and aired in 2006, so it's definitely not a 90s thing, but it's got that it's got sort of a throwback feel to that that you know, I'm chalking up as that as that fun element that you're talking about. It's kind of yeah. like what was the it other thing? It did just have that kind of like cheesy 90s nostalgia just kind of fun. Low stakes. Yeah. Yeah, and the way Garris films it, you know, there's a little imagination there, like the way he uses extreme close-ups and and stuff, especially on Ron Perlman, you know, who's got such a great face anyway, even before you start, you know, making it like bursting at the seams or whatever <laughs> the fuck is happening with uh, with Tack in there. It, the, all that's there. I, I think it looks a little too cheap for me, Like, I, but I, I, I get a real problem with uh, cheap production value. Like it, th- that, that stands out to me more than anything. And uh you know, I just think I think it looks a little too washed out, like a little personality list visually. Um, but, you know, McGarris kind of counters that with what you were saying, like the absurdity he plays with, you know, and some inventive camera tricks that, that he pulls. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a fully successful thing. It, it's a tough adaptation to begin with, um, again, because there's a lot of ridiculous shit and at the center of this stuff. Um, but something that occurred to me while I was watching this because I reread, like I said, I reread the book um, right before and I'm watching the the miniseries or the the TV movie and I'm like, you know, what's crazy is is I think that the only way to really adapt this is to tell the whole thing from David Carver's point of view because he is the main character and you don't fucking meet him until half an hour into the fucking movie. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. he, he is the protagonist of this of the story and, and it's one of those things where I can kind of feel like King had the basic idea for this and then like a month into writing figured out who his main character was and then just picked that person to then be the main character. Hmm. Um, because so you kind I, of think I, Peter is going to be the main character at the start. Oh yeah, for right. sure. Like it kind of is set yeah. up and you think Peter is like the main guy and then, you know, he gets, which is totally fun and totally cool. But, uh, if you're going to do that, then Mary should have been like the point of view. Right. Cause then that's mm-hmm. the, instead of, Instead of the, uh, you know, it's the wife that survives. Um, Instead of, like, introducing a whole gaggle of people in this jail situation and then spending another hundred pages of, you know, the cop going out and abducting more people and bringing them back. Because the whole idea is that he's grabbing these people and he thinks it's his will, you know, that he's doing it so he can have a a nice supply of, of bodies to jump into. Um, and then, but David Carver later says he thinks it was, he was doing it himself, but it was actually God, you know, organizing all this. And because these are the exact people that needed to be together in order to defeat this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the losers club is, it's the same thing in it, right? That's the whole thing where it's not each one of these people individually that could defeat the clown. It's, it's them all together. So it's something that he's done before, but it, with the losers club, everybody played a role, right? And here it seemed a little bit more half-assed where people were just like, yeah, we all need to be together because God wills it. And, but like, it's the only person that really plays a, a solid role outside of David is the writer. Right. Um, the rest of them, like Tom, the, the writer's assistant and the girl that was hitchhiking, they don't really right. contribute anything. No. And I think that they're really, <laughs> I really like the chemistry. I think that's one thing that the miniseries, I keep calling miniseries, the TV movie does really well is I really like Steven Weber and uh, Kelly Overton together. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think they have a really good chemistry and they're really fun and, you know, their back and forth is very playful. But you're right. In terms of, of like what they contribute, it's not really anything. They They could have not been in this thing and zero changes about the plot. 
Yeah. And I completely agree with that. Like it was, you know, this, uh, the scene when they go to the, uh, the mining offices, whatever, and they find all the dead bodies, like it was cool, but they didn't need to be there. Like ultimately in the end, it was kind of just David and the writer who did everything. Right. By the way, that's another thing I like, about. I like, I, well, it's the thing I like about, I like a scary story that has a mine in it or some, (laughs) you know, like Mm. that's always, you know, I just, I'm a sucker for that shit. I'm a sucker for hospitals. Hospitals, really? Yeah, hospitals. That's my, like, generally my favorite horror stuff um, centers around, like, hospitals or, like, old psychiatric, especially psychiatric hospitals. Really into, like, that kind of thing. You seen Session 9? No. Oh, my Lord. I'm going to blow your mind. Uh, Ignore (laughs) any other recommendation we've made during this show and... Do whatever you can to see Session Nine as soon. Is as it possible. a movie? Yeah, just had its twentieth anniversary. It's it's sort of a like a cult hit that's been gaining a following over the last twenty years. But it's uh, it's about this guy, uh, this team of dudes. They uh, they remove asbestos from old buildings, and so they put in a bid to work on this sprawling and totally dilapidated and horrifying former mental institution that's been like condemned outside of Boston. And so it's a psychological thriller slash horror film that takes place inside this location. And the thing is they filmed it at the actual location. Like that's, that's that was a real place where a lot of really horrific shit happened, like during the age of lobotomies and electroshock therapy and stuff. And so you see this building as it was, they've since torn that joint down and turned it into fucking condominiums. But the the power of seeing like those locations as they were and seeing these guys in it and then the story's just great on top of it. It's it's one of my all time favorite horror movies, like a top. OK, five. I just made a note in my phone. I'm going to watch it because oh. one of my all time favorite horror movies, technically, it's not a good movie. And people always laugh at me when I say it's one of my favorite movies ever. But the uh, 90s remake of House on Haunted Hill. Yes. Mm. Fucking I love yes, it. dude. I Absolutely. Fucking- Love it. I to me, one of the absolute scariest scenes in horror is when um what's her name? Melissa is going down into the basement and she's got her video camera. Yeah, she's like yep. looking through the camera and she comes across this old hospital bed and like it's empty, but then she looks at it through the camera and it's like Dr. Vaniket and his nurses operating on someone and she looks she like takes the camera down and she looks and they're gone and then she puts it back up and then just there's this noise that it makes like this whoop noise and all in unison they just turn and look at her i think that's one of the scariest scenes in horror it's hmm. so terrifying and the opening with the fucking when the inmates basically mm-hmm. take over the asylum and the dude gets the pencils through his neck i love house on haunted hill so much the, that one came out around the time of 13 ghosts the i 13 love ghosts. 13 ghosts yeah i I'm in the minority on that one, apparently, because I don't really I don't really care for that one very much. I've always been in and I've always kind of looked at it as as these teams. There's like House of House on Haunted Hill people or there are 13 ghost people like you're mm-hmm. you don't tend to find people that are both. But See, I, I think, like both. But I'm if I had to choose one, like absolutely no question House on Haunted Hill. It's a lot of that is William Malone, the guy that directed it. That guy is. He is just really, really good at, at crafting like nightmarish images. He's he's the dude that I always say like did the scariest episode of Tales from the Crypt. It's called like Only Skin Deep. 
And it's got that shaky head sort of Jacob's Ladder shit going on in it, mm-hmm. like House on Haunted Hill does. And it's just fucked up and weird. And it's like horny, but it's also like just really violent. Uh, one of the few like genuinely disturbing tales from the crypts. But yeah, love House on Haunted Hill. And I'm with you on the old like hospital stuff, you know. Yeah, right, right. it's the hospital stuff is like always my favorite. The only shit in that movie that doesn't really hold up is Chris Kattan. He gets a little more annoying every time I see that. <laughs> he's and he's like the most obvious relic of the time in which it was made, you know, because he was, mm-hmm. you know, Corky Romano and like he was on SNL and, you know, Mango and all that shit. You know, it's it's a little dated. Yeah, he's almost a little too. He's like almost a little too goofy for the movie. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I do love that one. Oh, I'm so glad we got a House on Haunted Hill uh, mention on this show. Oh, I'm, yeah, it's one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. Like, I, I have seen it so many times. And the ending kind of sucks, like, when it turns into the big shadow yeah. monster thing. But, again, that's the problem so many horror movies have with actually depicting, like, the big bad. So, And everything it does like, up until that point is so good. Exactly. You know? Everything leading up to that, to me, is so good that I'm willing to forgive the shitty ending. I've been to the, the, the that opening stretch in the theme park where – Jeffrey Rush. That's another thing. Fucking Jeffrey Rush is in that movie and he's great mm-hmm. at it. Playing like it, I saw someone describe it once as like he's playing it's Jeffrey Rush playing James Woods playing Vincent Price and that is dead on accurate. <laughs> but like like that whole stretch at the amusement park, that's actually Islands of Adventure in uh Islands of Adventure in Orlando. My wife and oh. I have been there a few times and every that 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 first coaster that they go on or not the first one but the the green one where it comes off the tracks. That's like the incredible Hulk coaster down there. Hmm. And um, yeah, every time we go on it, I'm like, this is the roller coaster from house on haunted Hill. And she's like, I fucking know. You've told me like <laughs> every time we do this, right. You know, I've seen the movie. I like the movie. I'm like, did you know, this is the roller coaster from house on. <laughs> Stop saying it. Yeah. Love that one. I think that probably brings us to the end of <laughs> desperation. We're ending on a note that has nothing to do with desperation. That's <laughs> But I'm glad we finally got to talk about this one. And uh, Laura, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to pitch, you know, whatever they're working on or whatever they'd like to draw attention to or promote. Where can people find you? What are you working on that you're excited about? Um, So you can just find me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, both Darth Lux, like Darth Vader, L-U-X. And right now, all I'm really working on is I am trying to do a Simpsons cosplay series for my OnlyFans. So I'm just... um, painting myself yellow and <laughs> shooting a lot of different Simpsons characters. And I'm having a great time. So <laughs> that's, I've been that's wondering, kind of does the paint right come off easy? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like, I get like good quality body paint for it and it's actually, um, it's pretty easy. And it honestly, like the paint looks kind of shit in real life. Like I just do a pretty like <laughs> haphazard job of it because yellow paint is really difficult to make it look good um so honestly like photoshop is doing a lot of heavy lifting in these pics in terms of my skin <laughs> color <laughs> so there's there is some paint but a lot of it is the editing because without the editing it looks like shit i just look like i have jaundice right. it <laughs> seems like it would get yeah, everywhere too like do you just paint everything but your feet so you can walk to the shower afterwards without fucking so up I your carpet so i mostly just kind of paint my face um my face my neck and sort of down to my chest and then like my arms stomach legs like i just photoshop it because otherwise it would go everywhere <laughs> but i use like the yellow paint on the f- 
on the face is kind of like a base for the color range that I'm in, and then it's easier to Photoshop it based on that color. Uh, right on. Well, you fooled me. It's working. Those Photoshop skills. <laughs> All righty. Well, um, thank you so much for being here today. This was a blast. And uh, we hope to have you back sometime. You know, cool. good times. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Laura Lux for joining us, talking about our good friend, Kali and Tack, and, <laughs> and the ridiculous amount of stories that we all seem to have about being afraid of cops. Thank yes. <laughs> is, is that just like a human nature thing? Are we all afraid of authority in that way? Yeah, I think or, so. Or and we're all... Us? Yeah, no, I think that's everyone. And and we're white, uh, which is <laughs> worth pointing out. You know, right. uh, other people are dealing with this in way worse ways than we are. And, and we sympathize. But I think we all are, are kind of like, fuck the cops. The King Cast is a fuck the cops show. I'm going to go on record with that right now. How do you feel about I, that, Eric? Are you, are you uh, on board with it, this or, it, or not it, so much? Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes me nervous. It, it, once again, it's challenging authority. It's making me nervous. Like I got butterflies in my stomach when you said that. I'm like, oh, what if they get angry and come come at me now? And they can suck a dick unless they got a warrant. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's that's the answer. I've, I listen. Listen, if there's any, uh, you know, situation that arrives where the king cast has to deal with cops, let me deal with the cops. I know. I know this. Sure this business yeah well you also have so much experience with yui bollocks too so that that helps you that is that is true that is true (laughs) in jokes callbacks so next week's a big week here we have a certified legend coming onto the show a giant guest a very well-known and respected and loved actor is joining us next week to talk about stand by me we usually tease the actor or the actress in this case, and I'm trying to figure out a way to do it without completely giving up the game. But I will say that this is somebody that you absolutely know. It's somebody you absolutely love. And we are still shocked that she not only agreed to come on the show, but seems very excited to do it. So, <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, we next week will be a big one. Uh, and stand by me. Any chance to revisit that that movie and uh, revisit Stephen King's the body is, uh, is something we'll take, especially when we have somebody as cool that's, that's mm-hmm. coming on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My only uh, add on my only mm-hmm. note, my only, yes. you know, interjection to that is that uh, this is a very appropriate month for us to be talking to this specific legendary actress. Right. Do with that what you will, but Holy shit. Uh, uh, <laughs> next week is, uh, we're, we're just, uh, words, words fail me. <laughs> yeah. We're still a little shell shocked and, uh, we record with this person actually as of this recording, uh, tomorrow, <laughs> the day that this episode drops is the day that we are recording with, yeah. uh, if it's with a disaster, it's not our fault. Just yes. That. Yes. It just, just, uh, we're going to put it all out of uh, our hands now. And cause you know, we're professionals, obviously. Mm hmm. Uh, so that's next week stand by me with uh, a great actress and that's going to be bonkers no matter how it shakes out what do we got for the patreon subscribers this friday scott we're bringing in a guy named scott mendelson he's the box office uh you know uh brainchild forecaster uh soothsayer and tea leave reader over at forbes.com uh if you know anything about box office or you're interested in learning anything about box office and 
how um, certain movies have performed. This is the guy you need to be listening to. Uh, we we brought him in to kind of walk us through King's entire history on film. What movies worked? What movies didn't? Are there any trends to spot there? Uh, how were his decades? It's, it's a top-to-bottom sort of discussion on King's performance with audiences and ticket sales over the last, right. you know, 30 years. If you're into math and <laughs> stat shit, like, this is the episode for you. Right. Yeah, no, it's uh, kind of looking at King's biggest hits, biggest misses, and kind of his dependability as a, a selling point for audiences. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's pretty damn high, which is the reason why there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of Stephen King movies and adaptations out there. Right. Uh, but, yeah, right. it's really cool. We get in the nitty gritty on all that stuff. So it's definitely a, a fun episode for all of our Patreon subscribers. And if you are not one yet, why don't you, you know, do it? Why don't you go over there, sign up, patreon.com slash the Kingcast. Uh, and if you join our $10 a month gunslinger tier, not only will you get uh, all the regular bonus episodes, you'll get exclusive commentaries. We got a really good one coming up. So you want to, we got a couple mm-hmm. of really good ones coming up, actually. So you're going to want to sign up for that. And on top of that, you get a uh, a big discount on our merch. And uh, and now you can actually use that discount on some really cool shit. Kotet19.net. That's K-A-T-E-T-1-9.net. They have set up a little boutique within their own Stephen King store, all officially licensed, uh, just for the King cast. And we're, we're rolling out new, uh, designs, t-shirts, tote bags, koozies, you name it over there all the time with, uh, some exciting new designs. We just, uh, we just, you know, wrapped up a weekend where we unleashed two new designs, uh, in honor of, uh, a couple of our favorite guests, that would be uh, Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel. Those proved to be very popular. Uh, we got more on the way. Uh, there's plenty there already. Please stop by and just just take a look at our wares. See what you think. Yeah. Imagine yourself be robed in King cast gear and how jealous your friends will be when they see it. Oh, uh, so, so super jealous. Mm-hmm. You will be the talk of the town. In a KingCast t-shirt. So definitely get over there and and look into that. All right. So we'll see everybody next week uh, for Stand By Me with our mystery legend (laughs) joining us. And uh, this Friday. You're going to shit your pants, everyone, when you find out who's coming on the show. Yeah, I'm shitting my pants now. Yeah. All of them. I got no pants left. I've shit all of them. I've been Um, doing it for weeks. We need to get some KingCast pants now. There we go. Tie Tie into our store. Um, all right, so so we have the pants shittingly good episode next week, and then this Friday, King's track record at the box office with Scott Mendelson. Adios, folks. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs> <laughs>